that, let us pray together. Gracious God, send forth your spirit by the power of your word to create faith, to forgive sin, and to grow our love for you and for one another. Amen. Well, Jesus talks a lot about hell, actually, Hades, Gehenna, whatever word you want to use, and and he does it usually in such a way that he wants us to pay attention, Uh, and and often uh, for us, we tend to trivialize it, make fun of it. That's what I did with the the skit here to try and get us to laugh a little bit, because we don't like to necessarily talk about it. It's one of those things we like to to forget, Uh, but um, for this parable, this actually isn't one of those times in which Jesus is wanting us to focus on H-E double hockey sticks, okay? Even though it's there, that's not the focus of the story. Uh, And as a moral people, we tend to want to find our lessons, right? We like the stories that, that expand what we're supposed to understand, what we're supposed to do, and, and parables do that. They give us a moral. They give us, give us something that we can learn from, but the, the parables are not by themselves. They don't just stand alone. They're, they're usually were things that Jesus used to expand on something else that he was, he was teaching on, an object lesson. And, and we can find parables in many other different ways. I was, I was thinking about it the other night. Uh, any fans of Finding Nemo? Anybody? Yeah, yeah. Well, you remember, you remember uh, that Dory and, and Marlin, they're going to find Nemo, and they get help from the school of fish, and the school of fish tell them, you're going to come up to a canyon, swim through it, not over it. Swim through it, not over it, right? Well, they get to this canyon, and it's one of those canyons that it looks like there's monsters in there, it's dark, dank, very scary, and Marlin, being smart, he's like, oh, we'll just go over the canyon, it's okay, and Dory, being the absent-minded fish, says, oh no, I think I remember something about we're supposed to swim through it, not over it. And they eventually swim over it and run into jellyfish and almost die. Well, we can use that parable to say, well, stick to the right path. Stick to the place that that people tell you to go and things will go well for you. It basically goes along with the, the, the tagline of do this, do this, whatever it is, and you will live. Do this and things will go well for you, regardless of what those things might be. And so that's why we like parables. My daughter, uh, she's going to be 18 in a little over a week, a week from tomorrow. And there's a lot of angst in our house over that. Um, But she's discovering that adulting is not as much fun as she thought it was going to be. I think everyone in this room, when you were a teenager, echoed Kevin McAllister from Home Alone, right? When I grow up and get married, I'm living alone. I'm li- like, you're happy, like, I'm going to grow up. I won't have my parents watching out for me, telling me what to do, and things are going to be awesome. I'm going to be fancy and free and everything, and she's starting to discover, really, actually, no, that's not how life works at all. We have responsibilities. Like, you have to feed yourself. You have to, you have, to have a place to sleep. You, you, you get to be the one to set your hair appointment. Mommy's not going to do that anymore. Even though she's looking at it going, well, when I turn 18, I can get a piercing in my nose and get a tattoo and all these other things. And we're like, yeah, my wife has used the not while you're under my roof argument, but I don't think that's going to work. Um, they're exactly the same, very stubborn. Um, but she's starting to discover that even though we get to that point in life where we think, well, we're going to be free, we're going to be able to do... Uh, anything we want to, and then we actually get to be an adult and we discover that we're actually not all that free. 
no matter how much we think we are. We, we, and then because we discover that we're not all that much as free as we think we should be, we walk into the danger of trying to control whatever it is that we can control in life, right? The things we can handle, the things that we can move around, the things that we can, we can make do what we want them to do, uh, because we want to hold on to those things because there's a bunch of things in life that we cannot control, like keeping your 18-year-old daughter from getting a tattoo. And before we know it, we're enslaved to those things. We're enslaved to basically what has become a new, a new God for us. And it can be anything. It can be money. It can be a house. It can be a car. It can be family. It can be a spouse. It can be a dog. Any, any owners of dogs? Anybody in the room? Do you run the house or does the dog run the house? I have cats, so I don't have to get up in the middle of the night in winter and take them out to go potty. The dog kind of runs the house, I'm guessing. Well, I start there because if we're wanting to be these moral people and, and figure out what the lesson is, we have to understand that Christ is placing this parable within the context of understanding that we are a controlling people. And as controlling people, we tend to craft a God the way that we want that God to be. And he's wanting to put this parable there within this whole entire teaching context of the fact of us trying to figure out who our God is. And so it's why I added the extra verses there before the parable. For instance, we hear, no slave can serve two masters. We've heard that before. Because he says, you're either going to love the one and hate the other, or you're going to do what the other one wants you to do and despise what the other one tells you to do. Trying to craft something else for ourselves. And he adds on there, you cannot serve God and wealth. Or, or the, word is, the word is mammon. It's, it's a borrowed word, but the, the word basically means property. It doesn't mean necessarily wealth. It means stuff. It means things that we can hold on to, things that we think we own. So it can be anything. Wealth is not just... Uh, Jeff Bezos with his 25 houses and private jets and all that stuff. It can be anything. Anything that we own become, can become mammon. It can become this thing that enslaves us, this thing that takes ownership of us, this thing that becomes our golden calf, our God. And so Jesus, like he always does, he's teaching on this and he ruffles the feathers of the religious leadership the Pharisees, who are described as lovers of money. The, the word in the Greek basically means friends of silver, if you break it down. Lovers of silver. It, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a picture of, of people who, they, they have this, 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 this love of something so much that they're going to hold tight to it. Why? Well, we like money because with money we feel as though we can have control. We can buy whatever we want. We can, we can tend to think that we can go wherever we want. Uh, we, we, we feel as though we can be more comfortable. We can be more at ease. We're not afraid because we can sit here and go, well, I have money in the bank, so if I, if I, if I lose my job, I can help pay the mortgage here or, or whatnot. And then also sometimes with money comes power. Another Disney movie. Let's see if you can recall what movie this, this line is from. Don't you know the golden rule? Whoever has the gold makes the rules. Anybody? Aladdin? 
Jafar dressed up as the icky old man, trying to, and he's got the really bad teeth, and, he, and he, he says, whoever has the gold makes the rules. I think of my family in California, where you can get arrested right now, or at least fined, if you have an unsanctioned gathering of a certain number of people in California. Yet, what happened last weekend? Oh, that's right, the Grammys happened. I wonder if they had after parties after the Grammys. Whoever has the gold makes the rules. Hmm. Different rules for different, different people. But what comes with this, this friendship with these things is that it basically leads us to lack of trust. I'm going to trust in this gold, this silver, this money, or this thing, whatever this thing might be. It could be a job. It could be family. It could be anything. I'm going to trust in that before I trust in my God. And so Jesus turns it around at, at the Pharisees, and he says, well, you, you justify yourselves. Basically, we being in the place of the Pharisees, we're, we're wanting to make sure that we're righteous. We're wanting to make sure that we, we've done what is right. We want to make sure that, that we're, we're good to go. And so it's, it's sort of like, uh, well, I, I wrote a check to World Hunger, or I helped out at the food shelf, or, or when those ASPCA commercials come on and Sarah McLaughlin starts to sing, in the arms of the angel, and I'm just there weeping because of the puppies, and I write the check, right? I wrote a check. I saved a puppy. These desires to make sure that we know that we've done this and will live. And then Jesus slaps us in the face and says, what is prized by human beings is an abomination in the sight of God. What is raised up, what is exalted, what is lifted up, what is glorified, even more so, church, what is deified, what is turned into another God, he says, it's an abomination to our God. And so he tells the story. We have the rich man feasting sumptuously. We have Lazarus, the poor man. The only mercy he receives is from some wild dogs who, who would have been considered unclean, and they're licking his sores. And there's this sense almost of a little bit of benevolence there from the rich man, because maybe the rich man is saying, oh, yeah, Lazarus, you can have a place here to to ask for alms. I'll let you camp out in my front yard. We can have a tent city out here for you. Maybe I'll even give you my tent. But then, what do we find out from the rich man? He can't keep death from coming, right? Death comes from them both in the electing love of God and God's election. He lifts up Lazarus and takes him to heaven, to the bosom of Abraham. Whereas the rich man, what do we hear of him? His obit is just this. He died and was buried, right? And the next thing we find out about him, where is he? He's not in the good place, right? And we find out that he's wanting to, to cool his tongue. And then we discover that he's trying to do something good while he's there in Hades, realm of the dead, hell, Gehenna, whatever term you want to use. And so he starts bartering for his family, he wants some special action to take place, and quite literally, he's wanting Jacob Marley, right? Send someone from the dead, send Lazarus back, and oh, they'll repent. Yeah, they'll repent. They're a bunch of Scrooges. They'll repent. It'll be good. We think of this as, as this, this has got to be a good thing. He's, he's, he's thinking of his family, but what is his focus? His focus isn't on God. His focus isn't on what God provides. His focus is on 
I don't want to be here. I grew up in a denomination in which I spent quite a bit of my time worrying that I'm going to die and go to hell all the time because I did not understand Jesus. I did not understand the mercy of God. I did not understand any of that. And so my idol became this fact that I don't want to go to this place instead of I want to love my Jesus. Because his whole focus is don't come here, avoid hell. He wants scare tactics. He wants poltergeists to show up and scare the living daylights out of his brothers. And what does Abraham say? They have Moses and the prophets. They should listen to them. What is he saying? He's, he's saying exactly what Jesus says right before he tells this parable. He says that the law and the prophets were proclaimed up until, up until John the Baptist came. He's saying that it's already been revealed who this God is. This God that has created you. This God that has redeemed you. This God that gives you life. That's the law. That's, that's the story of the, the first section of the Old Testament. And then we're given the prophets. And the prophets come to us and tell us, you are doing a very bad job of this. Right? Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. Pick one. That's, that's the job of the prophets. That whole thing, he's saying, no, you go there and you can know about this God, who your God is, who your God is supposed to be. And then he says that now after John the Baptist, the, the, the gospel has been proclaimed, the good news, meaning that, that when it's telling us that we have a God and this God has made us and the God, this God wants us to be his and and and, and, uh, and, and we, we were doing a really bad job of this, and yet we have Jesus who shows up, who fulfills all these expectations that, that God has provided for us. This Jesus. And then he says that even yet, they're still trying to take the kingdom by force, meaning you still have a whole load of people wanting to try and take this kingdom in their own way, to do this and live, wanting to fight their way into the castle And so we find the rich man, and that's not good enough for him. It's not good enough. He needs something else. So even while he's in hell, he says, no. If someone were to show up from the dead, they'll repent. I want something else. I don't want you, God. I don't want you of what you have already said, what you've already offered to me. I want someone to show up from the dead and scare them, and then they won't want to come to hell. And then Abraham says, if They do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. I always read that verse and I think Jesus is smiling, right? This is before he goes to the cross, right? And he says, yeah, well, if they're not going to listen to Moses and the prophets, they're not even going to be able to understand when someone rises from the dead, are they? Wink, wink. If you can't understand that first section of what God has told you, who God is for you, of what God has done for you, then Jesus is going to mean nothing to you. I'm going to mean nothing to you. If, if you don't want me in the way that I've, I've revealed myself to you, God is saying, you're not even going to be able to handle how I'm going to be revealing myself to you in Jesus. You're not going to understand the breadth of my love and grace and mercy, and that it's not about avoiding hell. It's about receiving the gifts of God, the forgiveness of sins, life everlasting, the things that he's done for us so that we don't have to worry about do this and live. Instead, we hear Christ did it, and you are alive, even in death. 
Confirmation students, look at me. Pay attention. This is what confirmation's about. This is not about, I've said this before, I'm going to say it a billion times, and you're going to get sick of it, but you're going to remember it. Confirmation is not about me making you into good little boys and girls. Because we can do that with anything. It's for you knowing who your God is, because you'll stand up in front of the congregation, and you're going to say, yes, I believe all these things. I trust in all these things. Well, who do we trust in? Not ourselves. Because I'll tell you right now, in 10 years, you're going to be an adult. And there's going to be some days where you're going to have trusted in something and it's going to fail you. It will. Just listen to your parents. They can tell you all sorts of stories about people they thought who were friends. And maybe it didn't turn out so well. Or family. Or jobs. Money. Whatever. And so it becomes this place for us to sit here and go, no, instead of worrying about avoiding hell, instead of worrying about, well, if I do this, if I learn this moral, if I follow these rules, if I write these checks, if I do all these things, then I'll live. No. The story is about Jesus. The story is about the God that we have that has been given to us, that we might hear him, that we might read his word, that he might reveal himself to us more and more so that all those other idols that we'll put up for ourselves, because you're going to, I know you're going to, because all of us do. Eventually he starts ripping those down. And someday soon, the only one there will be Jesus for you. And that is what we're here tonight for. We're here tonight to hear from his word that we might know him more and love him more so that then eventually, yeah, through the Spirit, God will be working these things in you, in you so that you come across a Lazarus and you'll help Lazarus out. But before that, you need the service of Christ to come to you and to give his life for you so that you might love him, cherish him, adore him for what he has done. Because then you can love others in the way that Christ has, which is you love them to death. Thanks be to God. Amen. Amen.